as we've been moving through uh, the Bible, looking at the story of God and how uh, He has revealed Himself uh, in the life of Israel, in their various institutions, their various practices, we've seen uh, God who's worthy of His position. Uh, we've seen uh, a God who holds us accountable. We've seen a God who has a plan. We've seen a God who is interested in every part of our life. He doesn't want us to uh, compartmentalize him into just one segment, but he is very much uh, a part of, of all that we are, all that we do, all that we think, all that we pursue. We've seen a God that's faithful to his promises. Um, as even in those times when, when we're not, even in those times when we fail, when we reject his way and his purpose in our lives, he's still there. Today, we transition from the period of the judges, Joshua, to the period of national Israel. And as we, we make this transition, we, we see two really new institutions come on the scene, two new entities appear in Israel. Now, they're new from a, a, a biblical narrative standpoint, but they're, they're not new in terms of the culture in which Israel lived. They, in fact, uh, had been around for already hundreds, thousands of years um, within the culture surrounding Israel. But as we, we transition into the book of Samuel and Kings, we see these two institutions uh, arise within Israel. And those two institutions are the monarchy and the prophet. And I don't think it's accidental that these two uh, entities uh, appear together. Um, up until this point in Israel's history, leadership has been determined by who God called, whether it's God appearing you know, in the burning bush with Moses or appearing as the commander of the army of the Lord to Joshua or whomever. God has, has empowered the leaders at this point. The Spirit has fallen upon them. They've, they've come to understand their role, their position in terms of God's leadership, and, and that's how leadership is going to be determined. But as the monarchy becomes instituted, leadership is no longer going to be determined that way. Now leadership is going to be determined by what? My daddy was king. I get to be king. Okay, It becomes a tradition. It becomes an institution. And so the question becomes, where is the voice of God in that environment? How is the voice of God maintained when in many ways, he doesn't really have, I mean, obviously he has a say, but he, he, he's not central to who the next king is and so forth. It's just whoever is the oldest son uh, gets to be the leader next. And so that's why he raises up the prophets. The prophets serve the, the role of the voice of God in the midst of Israel during this time. And you find that the, um, the kings respond and answer to even the prophets. And in many ways, the prophets are the leaders of Israel in this moment, in this, this time in history. And so when we come to, to Samuel and Kings, we, we hear that term kings, and we think that's really what the book's about. But if you, if you actually dig in to the outline of First and Second Kings in particular, what you'll see is that the majority of those two books are, are centered on two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, uh, as they carry out their ministry and their role in the midst of the monarchy. Now, the story, as, as we see, as we encounter here, 
uh, involves God uh, calling aside, setting aside a man named Saul to be the first king of Israel. And Saul, in terms of his his role, his nature, his personality, his his activity is is really kind of a a transition between the judge, the judges, and the king. So a lot of the acts he carries out are are acts that we saw carried out in the book of Judges for good and for bad. You see a lot of the failures of the judges playing out in Saul's ministry, in his his kingship, his leadership as well. But you also get these, these glimpses of hope, of a future where things might be different. Then, of course, we have David, the next king. Not a descendant of Saul, but nevertheless raised up by God in this time, in this moment, uh, to be his, uh, his voice, his, his, the, the centerpiece of his work. And it's to David that God expresses the, the messianic promise, that through him, through the, the line of David, uh, you would see uh, one who sits on the throne forever. One who's coming in power and in majesty. David's followed by Solomon, who at the beginning has great wisdom in how he does certain things as a fulfillment of his request from God. God grants him this wisdom, but Solomon makes the mistake of never having accountability present in his life. Unlike his father David, who had prophets continually, constantly coming to him and saying, David, you messed up. And David repenting of those sins and turning away from those sins, Solomon not once until the very end of his kingship do you see a prophet coming to Solomon at all. And because of that lack of accountability, because of that that, uh, lack of focus on the things of God, with Solomon you see an introduction of a reality that is really kind of the heart, especially of the book of Kings. Kings ends with Israel in exile. We just saw in Joshua them come in and take the land and, and get, fulfill that promise of God that God had, had expressed to Abraham is now fulfilled in, in them taking the land. But by the end of Kings, they're out of the land again. They're spread out. Many, most are in Babylon. Many are in Egypt. Some are in Syria. How do they get from this fulfillment of the promise to this reality of the exile? Well, it really kind of starts with Solomon and the following of false gods. See a picture there of the variety of false gods that were uh, available to Israel during this time. Things that we see from archaeology, things that we see from the biblical text itself individuals that or creations that were worshipped by man that tempted Israel and these false gods really do kind of define the center of Israel's focus during the period of the kings but if there's one truth that we can hold to if there's one truth that we can acknowledge especially as it plays out in the words of the prophets interacting with these kings, it is that God has no rival. 
There are, there are none who are equal to him. There are none who should be mentioned in the same sentence with him. He and he alone is God. So let's look at this phenomenon of false gods and how it plays out in, in, in these books and how God would have us understand our own relationship to this reality. Let's start with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11. And I realize most of you probably can't read that. It's a small print. It's hard when you're sitting at a computer, and it looks real big to you, <laughs> you know, but you realize that once it gets up on the screen, it kind of shrinks magically. I don't know. Anyway, hopefully, uh, if you have your own Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 11 is where we're at. And this is the, really, this is kind of the account, the beginning. Uh, uh, of the end for Israel as it pertains to the worship of false gods. And it begins with Solomon at the end of his kingship. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women. In addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. And they must not intermarry with you, because they will turn your hearts away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and from Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. Solomon fell prey to the culture that was around him. And some of these gods... Are, are really frightening. I mean, obviously any false god is going to be frightening, but some of these gods, such as Milcom and Kibosh, they they called for, they demanded child sacrifice. So the very fact that Solomon is, is building high places then right across from the temple, right across from the place that God was honored and God was glorified, tells you, how far he fell. And indeed, as he passes and, and the kingdom is divided into two kingdoms of, of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, his practices would, would carry on. His practices would continue to be a part. Jeroboam, the very first king of Israel, understanding uh, how tempting it would be for his people to return to, to Judah because of the temple in Jerusalem, set up two golden calves to keep his people from, from traveling down there. And over and over again, we, we read the refrain in Kings that the kings followed false gods and pursued high places. High places is a, a place where false gods were worshipped. Now as we, we hear that, we think, how strange that is, following false gods. 
They must have been a very superstitious people. They must have been a very um, unsophisticated people to to bow down and to to worship idols, objects made of of wood and and gold and brass and copper and all sorts of other metals. How unsophisticated, how simple-minded they must have been. But I want to remind us this morning, as I did a few weeks ago when we were in Exodus, looking at uh, the command not to have any other gods before us, that this is really a, a practice that we too are very guilty of. Oh, we don't we don't build the the idols, we don't build the, the statues, we don't we don't do that sort of thing. But we all in our lives have false gods that we pursue. Those things that we give our attention to, our focus to, that really ought to belong to God. Now, how do we identify our false gods? How do we how do we recognize things that that are gods in our life that have somehow supplanted or replaced who God, the position God alone should have? Well, I think the first question is, where are we focused? Where do we continually return our focus to, our attention to? Now, I understand life has a lot of things drawing our attention and and calling for our, our, our interest and our focus. Things that we're responsible for, work marriage, relationships, other tasks that are there. And those very much are are going to have moments where they claim our focus. But what is continually drawing our focus, even when we're not necessarily involved in that at the moment? Some people have, for instance, problems leaving work and they come home, and even though they're home and they're with their family, or, or maybe they're here in church or whatever, their thoughts are constantly of work and, and how they can do things, how they can change things, and how they can alter things to, to make more money or to be more successful or respond to some issue or whatever it is. That's what is constantly on their mind. What is it that is indispensable? Is the second question. What can we not? live without. What's the one thing if someone came to you and said, I'm taking this away, you feel like you wouldn't be able to operate or function? The internet, your phone, coffee. I saw someone mouth. What is that thing that you have to have. It's not just something you enjoy having, not just something that, that's present. Again, it's something that you're almost obsessed with, and if it were removed, you wouldn't be you in your estimation. Third question is, where do we go to for relief? When life gets hard, when it gets overwhelming, when, when we start to struggle, when we're we're trying to make sense of things and circumstances and, and situations that we're faced in. Where do we go? Where do we turn? We sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, righteousness. But is that 
really where we live in terms of our hope, in terms of our relief, in terms of our encouragement? What is it that that draws our attention? And what is it that forth that, that moves our, our emotional life? What feeds our emotions? What is our greatest joy or our deepest grief? What does our emotional life orbit around? If there's something that's that's at the center of these questions that's not God himself, there's a good chance that's an idol. There's a good chance that's a false God in your life and in your existence. And especially if more than one of these can be applied to that particular entity. And these, these other entities, these other realities, they can be good things. They can be wonderful things. For Israel, we read in the book of the Kings, that their number one idol became the temple itself. The temple was a good thing. It was given to them by God himself. It was something he instituted so that they might have fellowship, they might have communion, they might be able to connect and, and, and experience life to the fullest. It was a wonderful gift from God but it became a idol. When you find Israel and Judah saying, we're safe, we have no worries, because we have the temple. And God said, you know what? If your confidence is in that temple and not in me, I guess that temple has to go. He destroyed it. It's not about is it a good thing or a bad thing. It's about is it something that's taking more priority in your life than God himself? Is it something that you're leaning on more than God himself? Is it something you're trusting in more than God himself? Is it something you're focused upon more than God himself? So how do we break away from these false gods? What do, what do we see in our scriptures that help us to, to understand how to appreciate God, to follow God, to, to break away from false gods? Well, part of it starts when we grow in our appreciation of God by recognizing the facts about other gods. In other words, we see how great God is by seeing how useless other gods are. The first of these things that we see is we come to understand that other gods are, are impotent. They really possess no power. The only power they actually have in our lives is the power that we ourselves give them. Again, whatever this item is, relationship, work, Whatever it is, the true power it has over you is the power you give it. But in reality, it cannot do the things we hope it, do, it does. It, it can't grant us peace. It can't grant us hope and joy ultimately. It can't deliver us from our circumstances. Jeremiah 10, 2-5 says, 
Thus says Yahweh, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of the craftsmen. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They, cannot, they have to be carried, or they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Jeremiah starts with a, the picture of an, an asterisk pole. That's where you, they would take a tree, they would cut it down, and they would decorate it, and, and, and it was meant to represent this goddess. And they would worship it. And Jeremiah says, why do you do such things? These things have no power. We see another picture of this in 1 Samuel. Verse, uh, chapters 4 through 7. Israel has this, this battle against the Philistines. And they lose the battle and they say to themselves, how can we win? And they say, I know, let's go get the ark. And if we have the ark, we'll win. And they bring the ark. And because their confidence was in the ark and not in God, God let the ark be captured by the Philistines. And the text says that the Philistines brought the ark and they, they brought it into a, a temple of Dagon and, and put it before the statue of their god. And the next morning when they went in, the statue of their god was laying prostrate before the ark as if in obedience or, or submission to it. And then it says something very clearly, very pointed, very significant. It says, Then the Philistines stood their god back up. Now what kind of God is it that has to be stood back up by the people who worship it? And yet that's the very thing we do with our gods. We prop it up. We defend them. We, we justify them. We try and explain them as, well, I really need this, or it really has to be part of my life, or I really am dependent upon this. If I don't, where, where am I going to turn? And our confidence has become in something other than God himself. Secondly, sometimes we give credit to other gods for things that God has done. In 1 Kings 12, 28, Jeroboam, setting up the calves that I mentioned earlier for the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, says, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He points to the golden calves. And says, Behold your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt? Yahweh did. And in doing so, as we, we looked at that several weeks ago, he did it in such a way to thoroughly undermine and, and to discredit all the other gods of Egypt and, and all those who, who might get attention elsewhere. And yet, here you find Israel giving credit to a false god for something Yahweh has done.
too often we mix our own culture or our own mindsets or our own superstitions with things about God and we think, well, that's what's done it. You know, I have to pray just a certain way. Otherwise, God won't do it. Is that really the God you serve? That if you don't say the magic words, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, he's not going to answer you? What kind of God are you serving when you're mixing these, these superstitions, these practices, in order to get things accomplished? You've cheapened God by mixing him. We've cheapened God by mixing him with, with things he shouldn't be mixed with. He should be the one who gets soul credit. He should be the one that we acknowledge. So they're impotent, but sometimes we act like they're not because we mix them with things that God has done. But ultimately, we understand that they lead us to destruction. 2 Kings 16, 2-3 says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not... He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed his son because he thought that's what his God wanted. He destroyed a major portion of his life because he thought that's what his God wanted. What are we sacrificing at the foot of wealth or fame or power? Because we think that's what's wanted. That's what's needed. Too often we have bought into, quote, what's sometimes called the American dream. That if I just work a little harder and do a little more and all these other things, life will be good for me. And we end up sacrificing our families, ignoring our children, foregoing our responsibilities at church and in our Christian walk. To have just a little bit more. To become a God that is destroying us. We need to turn to the true God. So the other side of this equation. Is we grow in our appreciation of God. Not just when we recognize facts about false gods. But when we recognize facts about the true God. We come firstly to to understand and see that, as we've said before, he doesn't need us. He is powerful. He is awesome. He is in control, regardless of what we do. That story I mentioned before about the Philistines taking the ark and coming in with the statue bowed down. If you continue through the rest of that story, what you discover is wherever that ark is, sickness breaks out among the Philistines, and they start dying. 
They start suffering. And they keep moving the ark around there in 1 Samuel. Let's move it here. Maybe that'll work. Nope, those people get sick too. And finally they realize, we don't want this ark. And they send it back to Israel on a cart pulled by some oxen. And what's that a picture of? That's God beating the, the Philistines without Israel raising a single sword. Our God is powerful, awesome, wonderful. And he is, secondly, responsive to us. That's amazing in and of itself. To think of the almighty creator, the one who's made all that is, the one who is in control, who doesn't need us, he responds to us. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is in 1 Kings chapter 18. I, I can read it over and over and over again, just, just meditating and thinking about picturing the events. It's a famous story. It's a story of a, of a battle of the gods, as it were, between Elijah and the Baal prophets. Elijah, frustrated with the acts of Ahab and Jezebel challenges the Baal prophets to a competition. He says, let's meet on Mount Carmel. And we'll meet there. And we'll have a competition between the gods. And whoever's God is true, we'll see. It'll show up that day. He says, and here's the competition. We'll both build altars. And whosoever God brings fire down from the heavens to accept the offering we'll know he's the true God. Now here's the thing. The Baal that these Baal prophets were following is a God of lightning. If there's one thing he should be able to do, it's call lightning down, fire down from heaven to accept the offering. That's the one thing he should be able to do. That's, that's, his, that's his deal. So Elijah's fighting on his grounds, on his rules, according to his principles. The text says that the Baal prophets begin to, to pray and begin to, to ask their God to take the offering, and hours pass, nothing, nothing. And they get panicked. They start cutting themselves. Maybe if, we cut, maybe if we show that we're really serious and we're really earnest about this and this is really important, maybe then our God will answer. At this point, Elijah's over there mocking them. Maybe your God's on the toilets. What he says, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on vacation. That time of year, you know, maybe he took a trip. And they're getting more and more frantic. And finally, they're exhausted. They're wore out. They can't do anything else. They realize they failed. And then Isaiah says, okay, it's my turn. Or, excuse me, Elijah says, it's my turn. He says, bring, bring in some, first of all, let's dig a ditch around my altar and bring in some water and dump it on top. And they dump enough water to, to fill the ditch that was there and, and cover the altar and the animal and everything in water. We pick up in verse 36 of chapter 18. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and the water that was in the trench. God's fire didn't just take the offering. He took it all. I love it. Not, not, just, not even just the, the stone and the altar and the wood there, but even the dust and the water that was in the ditch. Elijah didn't have to beg. He didn't have to pray for hours and hours and hours and dance around and cut himself and do all these other things to try and prove his sincerity. He just asked, and God answered. Jesus would later say, if you as earthly fathers know how to give good things to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know to give to those who ask? Our God is responsive to us. And then our God won't be constrained by us. Simply, what I mean by that is he's bigger than we think he is. And our limitations and our, our frames of reference and, and our constraints that we want to put on him and how he's going to act, those don't work. Jeremiah chapter 7 says, Do not trust in these word, in the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on and do these abominations? No, you won't do that. You see, there's a difference between faith in God's faithfulness and presumption on what he, quote, owes us. Israel was living under the delusion that God owed them deliverance and protection. And Jeremiah says, don't pretend that you can go live however you want, and God won't respond to that. So how do we apply this knowledge that God has how, do we, how does that work its way into our life, into our existence today? How do we begin to live lives that reveal and reflect God as having no rival in our life? Number one, we need to understand that we were made for relationship with Him. When God created us in His image, back there in Genesis 1 where we started, He created us with a need, with a desire for Him. And in our fallen state, since the fall, we've sought different ways to try and fill that need. And we've tried to fill it with, with, with sex and money and, and all these things, some of them very good things. But they're not the thing. They're not Him. And so we walk around unsatisfied. We walk around 
wondering what's the purpose, what's the, what's the role, what, why am I even here on this earth? And C.S. Lewis put it this way, he says, if, if you find yourself in this life experiencing and realizing that, that nothing really meets the need, nothing of this world meets the need, then perhaps you were created for a different world. Indeed, we were created for a different world. We were created for a world in which we walked in relationship with God. He's at the center of it. And until we understand that truth, until we realize He is the answer, nothing else is going to make sense. Secondly, we need to reprioritize our life to His priorities. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but instead seek the good of his neighbor. What are God's priorities? They're real simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are God's priorities. They're simple to say, very hard sometimes to pursue because we let ourselves become the sinner. We let ourselves become the God of our lives instead of Him. And so third, we need to live each day mindful of the salvation He has given us. Remember what He's done. Remember who you were before Christ, an enemy of God, a person who was dead in their sin, a person who was without hope, a person who was without future, a person who was without anything that we needed. And he stepped in and he changed that. And he brought you from death to life. He brought you from hopelessness to hopefulness. He brought you from chaos to order. Meaninglessness to purpose. And as we live our lives and, and we go about our experiences and we, we do the things that, that we're called to do, and we re realize and recognize what it is he's done, we come to see that nothing else can meet that need. Paul in 1 Timothy verses one, or chapter 1, verses 15 and 17 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To realize what God has done. To realize the mercy that we've received. Is to realize God has no rival because no one else could do what he has done. No one else can provide what he has provided. No one else can lead and, and be with us the way he is. And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, you've never come to that point where he has moved you from death to life, where he's moved you from enemy to child, where he's moved you from chaos to order. He calls you today, and he invites you today to experience that life, to experience what you were made for, to find the life you were created to live. We invite you this morning to to come in just a moment to, to place your life in his hands. And in that moment, in that expression, in that experience, to, to find your purpose, to find your future and your hope, yourself. Others here might have other things that are on their hearts. Maybe you've made a commitment before and you need to follow through with some other act of obedience. Maybe God has called you to, to ministry or to, to missions or to some specific work. Maybe it's just to cross the street to talk to your neighbor for the first time about Jesus. You've talked to him about all sorts of other things, but you've never communicated the most important reality in your life and who he is. Maybe God's calling you that to that today. This is your opportunity to respond and say, here am I, Lord. Send me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up this time. We're going to stand here in just a moment. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If the Lord leads Respond as he leads. Be obedient to what he would have you do today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness and your love and your mercy. I thank you that you've done more in our hearts and minds and lives than we can even possibly imagine. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not experienced that life and that joy beyond our imagination, that you would you would call them today. You would lead them today, and they would respond in faith. God, I pray for others here who have decisions to make, who have commitments to express, that you would uh, draw them and, and help them to be responsive as well. And, Lord, we just praise you for doing in us what we could not do for ourselves, and that despite the fact that you are a God who has no rival, no equal, you still love us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.